And let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that the sinless Savior died. And so, Father, through this amazing, unfathomable act, our sinful souls are counted free. That you, the just God, can look on us and in your full and in full consistency with your justice, pardon us. Not because of us but because your Son stands before your throne and pleads for us, intercedes for us eternally. Father, we have sung of the great hope that we have in Christ alone, that we have a blessed assurance that in Him, despite the difficulties of this life, we have a river glorious of peace. And this all is ours because of Christ. Lord, I pray that that would be the testimony of every single person here this morning, that our confidence before you is found in Jesus alone. And Lord, if there are those here this morning, perhaps those listening online who do not know you, Father, today may it be the day of salvation. May they cry out in faith to Christ and there know this assurance, this peace, this justification found in Christ alone. Father, work in our midst as only you can. We pray all this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to, anyone want to take a guess where we are? 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Just so you know, we are getting closer to the end of 2 Peter 3. I know it's like incredible to think that that's going to be happening, but we'll be finishing up uh, 2 Peter in the next month or so. And uh, just to give you an idea of where we're heading after this, um, we're going to be doing a study through the last four books of the Old Testament, the last four um, minor prophets. Uh, I was listening to a, a, a sermon this week, uh, and this guy was, just, he was t- preaching on the minor prophets, and what he, he called them is he said these tend to be the clean pages in the Bible, in the sense that we don't spend a lot of time going through them. So, uh, but yet we find um, amazing truths of God's Word in these oft-neglected uh, books. So we're looking forward uh, to going through that. But here we are still in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter three, as we're looking at these pilgrim reminders. Uh, we're going to sort of pick up where we left off last week because we didn't quite get through everything because uh, we had a meeting afterwards. But um, but I, I wanted to to begin because we're going to talk about this in just a few moments. Um, I wanted to begin with a story from World War II, and this is one that is probably well known uh, because of the the sort of odd response that it that it speaks of. There's a story I believe it was from the Battle of the Bulge, where a um, uh, I believe it was an it was an Allied uh, commanding officer. I'm not sure what his rank was, but he ended up was completely surrounded by I believe Germans, and they had sent to him. And essentially, there was no escape. There was no way it was going to be. They were going to be out or whatever. It was a hopeless situation. And so the the commander of the German army sent a letter to him asking for his full and unconditional surrender. And uh, his response back to the German general was, nuts. (laughs) I don't know if you've heard that story or whatever. Um, He ended up in a hopeless situation. Peter is, in a few moments, going going to remind us that for those who are in Christ, there is no such thing as a hopeless situation. Even though at times our circumstances, the 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 world in which we live seems to make us think that things are hopeless. 
That is not the case. Our response will never be nuts. We're not going to make it. Our response is confidence in what Christ fully and completely does for us. But we need to be reminded of that. And so Peter is going to remind us here regarding some things that we must not overlook. Now, just to quickly remember where we are, we've been pursuing the Word of God. And that's how Peter begins here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Look with me in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so he tells us to pursue sincerely the Word of God and to pursue the genuine Word of God, both the Old Testament writings and the writings of the apostles, the New Testament. But then he reminds us in verse 3, knowing this, first of all, of first importance, this is what's going to happen. There will be scoffers that will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so we spent time last week looking at the call to reject the word of scoffers. We have to know that they exist. He tells us of first importance, know that they're going to come. We have to know their character, that they are following their own sinful desires, their their teaching and their scoffing at the things of God are done so that they can excuse their sinful behavior. And then he calls us then to thirdly realize the error that they teach. And this is where the difficulty comes in our own lives because they seek to cause us to doubt the truth that we know to be true. He calls us to realize their error. Now, it's important for us to note it's not like a like a, a an oversight on their part. They're not making this error because they sort of messed up. It is a deliberate error. Notice what he says again in verse 5. They deliberately overlooked this fact. Peter's point about the scoffers is that they willfully deny the activity of God in creation. Notice what he says. They are saying all things are continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. And so they would maybe give lip service to the fact or the idea that God created the world, but they would have sort of the old deist idea that he sort of set the world on its own. He wound it up like a clock and then let it go and then didn't have any other interaction with it. This is what scoffers would say. And yet, we see that Scripture is clear that God has not only created the world out of power, but He continues to uphold that same world with His power. And so by deliberately overlooking this fact that God is not only creator, but He is sustainer of this world, they seek to live a life completely free of His influence. If God isn't interacting with us, if God isn't intersecting with the world today, then what type of uh, accountability do I have to Him? What, what possible idea could I need to live my life before Him if He's not impacting us today? Now, the reality here is they're following what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 1, that they are showing that the wrath of God is against them. And it's shown by their unrighteousness, they are willingly suppressing the truth. They're deliberately overlooking the facts. And there are things about God that are clearly perceived in the world around us ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And the final point he says is they are without what? excuse. They're deliberate in their denying 
which shows us the second thing about their error. Not only is it a deliberate error, it is a denying error. They say, verse 4, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What they are seeking to do is to say, look, Jesus said He's coming back, but where is He? He hasn't returned. He must have been lying. That's the message that scoffers will give. Why? And the, the whole point is they say it's ridiculous for you to think that this person who's died and is now gone is coming back. He's not. And as a result of that, if they deny the return of Christ, then there's no accountability for him one day. He's not going to come back and judge the earth. He's not coming back at all. So live it up. Indulge in your sinful activities. Turn away from the Lord. Act however you want to. There's no accountability before the Lord. And so as Paul again says in Romans 1.32, that though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, and Paul had just gone through a list of despicable sins, And there is a clear knowledge that God has said, if you practice sin, you deserve to what? Die. The wages of sin is death. But what these people do is in denying accountability before God, denying the fact that one day He will come back and we will stand before Him, not only do they do these sinful activities, but they give approval to those who practice them. And boy, don't we see that in the world in which we live today scoffers will turn away from the Word of God. They think it's ridiculous that we believe Jesus is coming back. Now, this was written a few decades after Christ ascended into heaven. It's been 2,000 years. Has He returned yet? No. No. And so even more so today, there is a call to say, the Bible is just a book of fairy tales. Yes, there's maybe some good moral truth in it, but overall, all of these things that are promised in here, they're obviously not coming to pass. And so the word, the world has scoffers that scoff at the message that Christ is returning. They scoff at the gospel call to repent and trust in Christ. Why repent if there's no accountability for your sins? Why trust Jesus? He's not coming back. But then Peter reminds us, graciously reminds us that we need to marvel at the power of God's Word. And here's the thing. Not only does the world scoff at the truth that we find in Scripture, the scoff at the idea that Jesus is coming again, but the world also will, or that, that the fact that Jesus has delayed for 2,000 years, that seed of doubt can begin to grow in our own lives, can it? Is He really coming back? And particularly when we're in the midst of difficulties and trials and, and the the. the uck that is in the world around us we can cry out and say why is this continuing and we can begin to deny what true reality is but peter reminds us he reminds us in verse 5 that the fact that is overlooked is the fact that god is the great creator Notice what he says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by what? The Word of God. God's Word creates. We can never miss this fundamental aspect of what the Bible teaches. We live in a world today that will... even within Christianity, that seeks to explain away God's creative power. Oh, it was just 
chance processes that happened to happen. There was an explosion in deep, deep time in antiquity. And that's why the world exists here today. That we're nothing more than a chance encounter between carbon and some primordial soup. And that over time, we evolved to become what we are today. You realize that this goes against everything the Bible teaches, particularly about the fact that we are created not in the image of a lizard or an ape, but we are created in the image of who? God. But if you can erase that, if you can turn that away, if you can take away the creative power of God, then there's no accountability before Him. But the truth is, the world that now exists was created by God's infinite Word. God looked on the emptiness of space and He said, Let there be light, and there was light. He spoke all these things into existence. And this is done by the power of His Word. As the psalmist tells us in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their host. You know, it, it is amazing to think of the creative power of God in just speaking. Have you ever looked at, at the immense power of the sun? I mean, the sun is, is far... The, the energy that it takes for the sun to exist is far beyond our even wildest dreams of imagination. And God just said, let it be. And it was. Now, how do we come to understand this? And it comes through faith. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by what? The Word of God. So that what is seen, this material world that we live in, is actually made out of the things that are, um, was not made out of the things that are visible. So God's Word creates. But not only does God's Word create, it also sustains. Look at again what Peter says in verse 6. And that by means of these, the these they're reporting, looking back to the Word of God that's used to create all things, The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up. And so we see a very clear indication that God's power is keeping this world in existence today. The scriptures are clear about this reality. That God's word sustains In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God's word sustains. Listen, this you do not, and you realize this, you do not sustain your life. Like, make your heart beat. You, you, you can't do that. Why is your heart beating? It's not because you're maintaining. It's because Christ is upholding the world by the word of his power. Why is it that when you breathe in, your lungs take in the oxygen and, and it provides it to your, to your um blood and your blood goes through your body and the circulatory system works so that your muscles work like yes you can breathe in but can you make your lungs work are you the one doing that it's god now this should this should cause us to really humble ourselves in this world because the reality is we look at everything in this life and we're like ah i'm all that in a bag of chips right I've made things the way they are. I've built this life. I've done this. I've done that. And listen, 
perhaps you have, by God's grace, accomplished things, but do you realize that every beat of your heart as you did it was given by the grace of God? He upholds this world by His Word. And this Word that creates and this Word that sustains is one final thing that Peter does not shy away from. And that is that God's Word destroys. Notice what Peter says here. He first of all points to the fact that God's Word destroyed the world that did exist. By means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. God spoke to the world of Noah's time. He spoke to the heavens. He spoke to the depths of the earth. And the heavens opened, the depths of the earth fomented up, and the entire world was deluged in a flood. And every single person, apart from those in the ark of God, was killed. Now, remember what these false teachers are saying. Jesus isn't coming back. And if Jesus isn't coming back, then there's no accountability. But God, in the past, has shown His accountability that he holds over mankind by destroying a world where every thought and intention of their heart was only evil continually. And he sent a flood, having regretted the very fact that he made man. And the same God whose word destroyed the world in that day, that same God will send Not a flood, but what? Verse 7. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up, not for water, but for fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. We have to recognize, and Peter is reminding us, that there is accountability before God. And God will come and judge this world in perfect, complete righteousness and justice. This is a very unpopular teaching in this day and age. That God would ever hold people to account for anything. We live in a world that doesn't want to hold account for anything, for the smallest of things. You know, I forget to take the trash out. My wife reminds me. I asked you to take the trash out. You didn't take the trash out. And my first response is, well, it, it, I don't want to take a responsibility for that, but why didn't I take the trash out? Because I'm stupid. I should have taken the trash out. I mean, is it really that hard for me to lift it up out of the thing and tie it up and take it to the back and throw it in the garbage? I mean, really. But I don't want to hold accountability for that. And that's something small. By the way, today is my wife and I's 18th wedding anniversary. So she's been putting up with me not taking out the trash for 18 years. So She is long-suffering and kind. We don't want to take accountability for something as simple as that. We don't want to take accountability for even the big mistakes in our lives. Our, our world today is wanting to blame the things that we do on everything else but ourselves, our circumstances, our environment, um, the oppressive systems we live in, and nobody wants to take accountability for what they've done. And here's the thing, and Peter is abundantly clear. There is going to be a day where there will be clear and unescapable accountability before a holy and righteous God. And that this world that exists today, this world that we love so much is being kept. It's being sustained for one purpose, to be destroyed. Now listen, this should really change your mind about the things in your life. Your car, your house, your finances, the goods that you have. Look, You can heap up a lot of stuff, but all you're doing is heaping up more and more kindling. 
because everything in this fallen material word, world is going to burn. Why does it proceed today? Why is it stored up? Peter is telling us so that God can destroy it. And so when Peter calls us to remember the Word of God, to recognize that we're to pursue that Word, we're to reject the Word of scoffers, then marvel at the power of God's Word, we need to marvel at the fact that God will come and judge. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. John writes, Then I saw heaven open. This is the great last battle on planet earth. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which... To do what? Strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Those scoffers that say Jesus isn't coming back, He's coming back. And it will be a fearful thing. It will be a terrifying thing for those who scoff at Him. So we are reminded to marvel at the power of God's Word. But then Peter turns and gives us great hope. As he has spoken very clearly and very terrifyingly towards the scoffers, he also seeks to encourage God's people. He calls us to remember the promises of God. Look at what he says in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. And just to quickly note, the fact that throughout this, Peter uses the term beloved or dear friends shows not just the fact that he's writing to people he has to write to, but he genuinely holds them in love in his heart. And he reminds them, don't overlook this one fact, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so Peter comes to remind us of the promises of God and begins by, first of all, telling us that God's promises are not bound by time. God's promises are not bound by time. While the scoffers are deliberately overlooking the creative and sustaining and destroying power of God's Word, Peter calls us to the opposite. Do not overlook. Don't forget. Remember. Don't be like the scoffers who are deliberately overlooking this fact. Remember. And then what does he tell us to remember first of all? That Christ, that God does not act according to our timetables. One year, or one, I'm sorry, one day for him is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, again, the argument of the scoffers would grow strong just from an observation standpoint. The church in the first century to who Peter was writing was suffering. They were being chased and persecuted and martyred and killed. And they looked up and said, Lord, are you coming back? And he didn't come back. So it would pull them. It'd be compelling 
because of the circumstances they were facing. But here we are 2,000 years later, and the same things continue. And so it is very easy for us to wonder, Lord, are you coming back? Is, is, are you true to your word? It's been so long. The church has suffered year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia. And Jesus is up in heaven and he's watching what's happening to his people. And he hasn't come back. And so, the message of the scoffers is compelling. And that's why Peter reminds us, look, God doesn't live in a world bound by time. The point that Peter is making here is not to say that literally one day here on the earth is as a thousand years to the Lord, and as a thousand years is as one day to the Lord. The point he's trying to make is that God is, lives outside of time. God created time. And so for someone to create something, he cannot be bound by the thing that he's created. And so God is eternal. Listen, how many of you understand the fact that God has no beginning? I mean, we accept it that it's true, but that one fries my brain every time I try to think about it. And so Peter is reminding us, look, the God who makes these promises fulfills His promises, but He does it according to His timing. It's the God who exists out of time. He's not bound to act according to our ways. And I'll tell you what, how often do we become impatient with the Lord, right? We don't, we don't become impatient with the fact that He hasn't come back. We become impatient with the fact that, why haven't you fixed this small temporal thing in my life, Right? And that's the way that it really attacks us. Oh, we will sing, you know, we'll say amen after we take communion here. And, and because even so come Lord Jesus, but then we'll get upset that we have a flat tire on the way home from church. Or someone cut us off. And so Peter is reminding us of what the psalmist says in Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is a recounting of the history of Israel. Notice what he says here. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in how many generations? All. Does that include us today? Yes. And listen, notice what the psalmist points us to remember. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is so far above us. And then the psalmist reminds us of who we are. You return man to what? You return man to what? Dust. You are nothing but dust. You come to Bible Baptist, you really get encouraged and picked up here, all right? It's good for us to remember that we're nothing but dust in comparison to the almighty, eternal God who created us from the dust. It also shows the audacity that we, beings of the dust, would ever seek to rebel against this great God. Who do we think we are? No wonder God is in heaven laughing at us as these little claymation people rise up against Him. You return man to dust and say, return, O children. And this is where likely Peter is alluding to. For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Now, the point that the psalmist goes to, that Moses goes to, is he's the one who wrote this psalm. The point he goes to at this point is not for us to just oh, bemoan ourselves, I'm nothing but dust, I'm going to return to nothing but dust, but rather to realize that the eternal, almighty, great God loves us and that He is a dwelling place for us in the midst of any difficulty we face. And so here's the reality that 
that Moses is reminding us and that Peter is reminding us is that even though God is not bound by time, he provides strength and courage to his people in time. He is a refuge for the soul, even though we may languish for years on this earth. So what is our response then to this reality that we are dust and that God exists outside of time? And the response that we find over and over again in Scripture is probably one of the worst words we like to hear. Patience. Notice what the psalmist says says in Psalm 37, 32-34. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. He recognizes that we're in a world that is out to get us. And then we find this great hope. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. So what is the response? The response is not, all right, fix it immediately, Lord. Make it so that I'm not abandoned to those who have power over me. Make sure that I'm not condemned when I am brought to trial. That's not the response. The response is what? Wait. Wait. That's a four-letter word. I mean, it's literally a four-letter word, and it is a four-letter word in our society. Nobody likes to wait. I can't tell you how frustrated I've been with the work they're doing right outside of the main road right by my house. Last week, I used to turn down my street, and I could turn like no problem onto, my, onto the road in front of me. Now, I have to wait for a flagger to tell me that it's okay for me to go. And boy, I don't have a lot of patience with that. How much more do we not have patience when we are suffering by the wicked that are seeking to destroy us? And the message of the psalmist here is, wait for the Lord. And then keep His way. Both of those things need to be necessary. We can wait but we'll say, I'll wait, but I'm just, I'm going to lose my faith. I'm going to go into sin. I'm going to use everything I can to numb the difficulties of life. And the psalmist says, no, you have to wait and keep the way of the Lord. And then I love what he says. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on the wicked. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Isaiah speaks of a great day where God will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people will He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have what? Waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us now be glad and rejoice in His salvation. How many of you would love to have at this moment all the tears of the difficulties of this life wiped away? Oh, we yearn for that, don't we? But that salvation, that day where death itself is swallowed up comes to the people who wait for the Lord. And this desire for God to vindicate and to save immediately, it is even evident in heaven. Revelation chapter 6, there is this image of the souls that have died for the testimony of Christ. And they are underneath the altar and they are crying out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Have you ever felt like this? We see wickedness prevailing. We see the wicked prospering. We see the righteous suffering. We ourselves experience that. And so even in heaven, there are souls underneath the altar, those who have shed their blood for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And they cry out, how long? 
avenge our blood. But then there's a response. They were each given a white robe. They were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. They were told, even in heaven, they were told to wait. Now, why? Why were they told to wait? And in fact, in that passage, we see the reason, and Peter points us to that here in verse 9. Because while God's promises are now bound by time, God's patience ensures those promises. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What a wonderful verse in Scripture. Why is God patient? After reminding us that God is not bound by time, Peter also reminds us that God will accomplish His plan of salvation. And he directly links God's or Christ's delay in coming to the fact that He has more people to save. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. It's not that God is dragging His feet in coming back. It's not that He is something hindering Him from doing this. He could come back at any time. And that was the message He gave to His disciples. At the end of the book of Revelation, he says, Behold, I come quickly. And as we look at that, we think quickly, and it's been 2,000 years since that's been written. How, how, what do you mean quickly? Remember, God is not bound by time. So why is he delaying from our perspective? Because he is patient towards who? Us. Oh, praise the Lord that He's patient with us. Scripture tells us that if the Lord should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The point that Peter is making here is that God delays. God's slow from our perspective. Not that He really is slow, but He's slow so that His people would come to repentance. He's patient with rebels. Now, I I want you to think about what this looks like just from the story of the Apostle Paul. Right? The Lord was patient with Paul. Before he came to know the Savior, he was patient with him because as people were killing Stephen, a beloved child of Christ, what was Paul doing? Holding their coats. As he heads out on the, on the Damascus Road, what had be, he was doing? Before that, he was breathing out threats to the church. He wanted to kill as many Christians as he could. Now, listen, it, it, we would respond not with patience, but with vengeance in those circumstances, wouldn't we? But God is patient. And then he meets Paul on the Damascus Road. And notice what he says to Paul. He says, it is Christ Jesus whom you are persecuting. You realize that Jesus is identifying with his people that the mystical union we have with him, Christ is saying, you're not just, you're not like persecuting something that is apart from me. You're persecuting me when you persecute the church. And yet, he's patient with Paul. 
He meets him there, changes him fundamentally, and Paul becomes one who writes most of the New Testament. Why did God not take Paul out when he was holding the, the coats of those who were stoning Stephen? Why didn't he stop his heart? Because he's patient towards his people. He's not willing that any perish but that all would come to repentance. Peter's point here is to say why Christ hasn't returned is because He still has people to save. There are still sinners with whom He is being patient. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Again, Jesus speaks of this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And those who come to Him, He will never cast out. He's the good shepherd. He knows His own and His own know Him, just as the Father knows Him and He knows the Father. And I, Christ, lays down His life for the sheep. And then notice what He says. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I should bring them also? I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Christ has not come back because He still has sheep to save. So God's patience ensures that all those whom will be saved will be saved. Christ will lose none of His. Now, what is it that Christ seeks to accomplish? And this is important to remember as well. He's not willing that we should perish. He's saving us from that fire that this world is being stored up for. But there's a second thing that we often don't think about that we would not perish, but instead we would reach what? Repentance. Salvation is so much more than fire insurance. God does not want to just save you so that you're not the subject of His wrath. He saves, and when He saves, He transforms so that you turn from who you were and you turn to be like Jesus. That's repentance. So as we've read in Psalm 130 already, he continues. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord. What is the psalmist doing as he's responding to what God had said? He's what? Waiting. He's waiting more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with Him, with the Lord, there is steadfast love. With Him, there is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. God will lose none of those whom He will save. And so He calls us then to repent. I don't have... The time this morning, but if you have some time, read Ezekiel 33, verses 10 through 11. Oh, I'll just do it real quick. Wasn't it last week we talked about my three-hour-long sermons? Like, if people can sit through a three-hour-long Taylor Swift conference, they can slip, slip, they can sit through a three... You know what I mean. Now, obviously, God is judging me, not allowing me to talk. He's like, wrap it up here. No. Notice what Ezekiel says. You, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I don't desire that any of my people would perish. But this is what I do desire. That the wicked... Turn from his way and live. 
Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And so what we should take away from this verse, which is a verse that's debated about a number of different things, and, but I think we miss the point. God hasn't come back yet because He wants His people to repent. He's giving us time. He's long-suffering with us so that we would repent. Have you done that? Have you repented and turned to Christ alone? Peter, next, and not next week, but the week after, we're going to look at what Peter describes as the consequence for those who do not repent and turn to Christ. And it is fearful. It is fiery. It is damnation and it is wrath. But Peter begins this all by reminding us that God has promised to save all whom He will save. In John 6, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. So our hope, what we need to be reminded of today is that Christ has not come back because He's patient. If you're here today and you've never turned to Christ in faith, you've never turned from sin, turn to Him. You realize that the breaths in your lung, the beats of your heart, are being sustained by a holy and righteous God, and He delays His judgment that you would come in and turn to Him. If you've never done that, would you do that today? And for us who are His people, this passage gives us great confidence. Will Jesus lose any of us if we're in Him? No. So we become impatient with the difficulties of life. We worry about the trials that we face. We want them to be over. We want justice to be done If you're in the hands of Christ and the hands of the Father, whose hands are better to be in? None. Let's pray. Father, take your word. Encourage and convict. We pray this all in Christ.